0: So go to Amazon on March 8th, and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late, and you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and today we have a world-renowned speaker, a coach, a leadership consultant, someone who has been everywhere, from playing sports in college, at a high-level football, to being an advisor, to President Barack Obama, to being in politics in the state senate legislature, to going all over the country, all over the world. he doesn't need an introduction. I couldn't do him justice. My new friend, Mr. Anton Gunn. Anton, how are you today, my friend?
1: I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you and your listeners. Well,
0: it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. And I'm curious, I'm gonna ask you about the hard stuff you've been through. I'm gonna ask you about your vision. Before we get to that though, you have the most amazing background. There are so many things back here that are so unique. I'm curious, I think I see 1973 back here in your background. What what is the significance of this 1973 in your background here?
1: So 1973 is a great year because it's the year of my birth. I am 50 years old. I was born in 1973. It's also the birth year of hip hop, music, and culture, which is synonymous with my life. I tell people hip hop is who I am and leadership is what I do. I really do love the music and the culture. It shaped my life. In some respects, it saved my life. It put me on the straight and narrow, gave me purpose. And It was the first time I saw young Black men who looked like me, experience the world the way that I did, speak truth to power, put their voice and their experiences on wax, on tape, on CD, whatever you want to call it, and uh, share it with the world. And it gave me a reason and a focus to deliver voice and message. So 1973 is just kind of an epic year because of my birth and because of hip-hop. Heck
0: yeah, and I'm gonna call faults on this. There's no way you're 50. Uh, You're not a day over 36, but good good to hear this. Can you go back to the original tape that you had back in the day? What was your first tape you ever had in the hip-hop genre?
1: Great question. The very first tape that I purchased with my own money was the Fat Boys album, (laughs) Fat Boys. Yes. Their first tape, I think it was 1984 when I bought that tape. The song was Stick'em, was my favorite (laughs) song on that album. And so... I fell in love with hip-hop when uh, when I heard Stick'em. After that, I was addicted. I bought everything that I could. I recorded everything that I could. Yeah. I was a kid who used to stay up late because hip-hop wasn't played on the radio at all. No. So the only time you could hear it was at 1 AM in the morning when they would play like one hour worth of hip-hop songs, and I would record them all. And then when Video Vibrations was a show on BET <laughs> that would come on, it would play R&B music for two full hours. In the last 15 minutes of Video Vibrations, they would show three rap videos, and I had my VCR set to record <laughs> for the last 15 minutes to catch those three rap videos. I love the culture. There's nothing that I could do to get enough of it. So going to concerts, rapping myself, trying to DJ, being a breakdancer doing everything I could to be a part of the culture. It was something that made me whole, and it still makes me whole to this day. It really is nostalgic for me. I'm a classic hip hop guy, so I don't listen to much modern music, modern artists. Anybody who came out after like 2000 is kind of dead to me, unless it's an older artist who made something in the 2000s. But I'm very much from the core of the classic elements from 1978, 79, 80, all the way on up to, like I said, the mid-90s hip-hop scene, late-90s hip-hop scene, in my mind, is the greatest times. And so I stay right there. Awesome.
0: Awesome. You are four years older than me, so I want to kind of give you some context, because I love hip-hop also. And the first tape that I ever was given, I was in fifth grade, and I got the tape. It was Cool Moe How You Like Me mm-hmm. Now. Yes. And I love that song. It's on my Spotify, one of my yeah. favorites.
1: It's a classic.
0: Yeah, heck Yeah.
1: It was such a classic that like, just yesterday, I work out in the mornings, and when I do my push-ups and sit-ups, I pick one song to do my 50 push-ups and my 100 bicycle crunches. Yesterday's song, I chose Jack the Ripper by LL Cool J, (laughs) which immediately made me start thinking about the precursor to that song, which was How You Like Me Now, because LL Cool J said a few things, Mo D took offense to it made How You Like Me Now, and on the cover of that tape, put this red kango underneath the tire of the Jeep on the cover of the cassette tape, which was like the ultimate disc because everybody knew LL Cool J by that red Kango. Yeah. And so LL comes back with Jack the Ripper, and it was like one of the greatest <laughs> battles on wax is LL Cool J versus Kumo D. So that was a great <laughs> tape. For you to get started on with How You Like Me Now by Akumo D.
0: Okay. One last thought on this thread that you said the first tape was the Fat Boys. And if you noticed, I kind of like dropped my jaw when you said that because my first tape ever was the Fat Boys. My first hip hop tape, at least. My first tape ever was Michael Jackson Bad. My first tape of hip hop was the Fat Boys Coming Back Hard Again. So I think that might have yeah. been their, their re release or their, I guess their comeback. Yeah. That was my yeah. first uh, hip hop tape
1: know yeah, so. that was a comeback for sure. They're one of the unsung stories. Like I'm Facebook friends with Ski, Damon Wembley. So we go back and forth all the time talking about the old days. But the Fat Boys don't get enough credit because they were early days like a pop superstar in the context of hip hop. They made movies. I mean, they had a feature yes. movie called Disorderlies. Disorderly. Yes. And, and um, <laughs> it was hilarious. They were like the three stooges of rap, so to speak. And so they made money. They made movies. They had all of the fame that you can think of in the world. And then all of a sudden, the music and the culture just kind of left them behind. And it was a surprisingly short-lived career, but they had an incredible amount of success. And you can't forget the Fat Boys. You just can't. can't leave them out.
0: That's right, man. That Disorderly is just still a VHS on my mom's shelf. I just saw her Christmas fan. So I, I knew that one. I remember that. I think it's a raccoon skin hat that one yeah. of them has on in there. Yeah. And the younger yeah. one, Prince the darker Mar- skin D. one. The-
1: yeah. Buff and Prince Market D used to wear the raccoon skin hat on the yeah. top of the head. That was their style. Yeah
0: we are bringing back some good smiles. So that segues into maybe a heavier subject for some out there. We are the Eternal Optimist podcast where we want to offer hope and a you can do it to attitude. And I interview successful folks and I ask them, what's something hard that you have endured or overcome in your life? And I'll give you carte blanche to start or share wherever you want to, Anton. What's something hard that you've had to endure and overcome?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot there. This is a very deep question. And I think we all experience adversity in our lives. And when we meet successful people, we see the glory, but we never know the story. We see the testimony, but we don't hear about the test. I've had some significant tests in my life The one that has been the biggest and has had the longest lasting impact is the fact that I'm the oldest of four boys. My mom had four kids and I'm the oldest son. My dad was in the Navy for 22 years. We were a military family, but I'm not a first generation military family. My grandfather, all of my uncles, my great grandfather all served in the military. It was a normal tradition for people in my family to join the military. I mean, like men in my family, that's what they did is they joined the military. My dad knew that his oldest son was six foot four, 225 pounds and could run pretty fast and had the opportunity to go to college to play football and get a full scholarship. So I got a full scholarship to come to the University of South Carolina to play football So I didn't do what every other man in my family had done, which is join the military. Now, the important part of that context is this. My great grandfather served in both world wars. He happened to be the right age both times to serve in the First World War and the Second World War. His son, his oldest son, my grandfather, served in World War II. My dad, as I mentioned, was in the Navy during Vietnam and Desert Storm. But my dad had three brothers, and all three of his brothers also served in the military. My Uncle Clarence was a Marine during the Korean War. My Uncle LG was in the Army during Vietnam. And my dad's baby brother, my Uncle Lucky, joined the Army in 1973 and was in basic training when the Vietnam War ended, so he never saw combat. That's why he got the nickname Lucky, because he was lucky not to see combat. So when I went to college, I was the first in that fourth generation not to serve. However, my younger brother, Sharon, who's five years younger than me, joined the United States Navy in January of 2000. He went to basic training in February of 2000. And then in June of 2000, he was assigned to a United States ship, a destroyer known as the USS Cole. And literally a few months after being assigned to the USS Cole, two Suicide bombers, Al-Qaeda suicide bombers, pulled a skiff up alongside the USS Cole while it was mooring in Aden, the port of Aden in Yemen. And they detonated themselves in a thousand pounds of explosive blowing a 40 by 60 foot hole in the side of the ship, which killed my brother and 16 of his shipmates. Three generations of men in my family went off to war and they all came back home. And in the year 2000, which was a great year by all accounts, I mean, like we survived Y2K and made it through that. And everybody was living and enjoying their lives. In October 2000, my brother was killed by two terrorists, along with 16 his shipmates and 39 injured. It was the most devastating day in my life, in my family's life. Because, again, this is what we didn't expect. I mean, that we were not in a conflict. This was before 9-11. This was before the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is before the majority of Americans had any concept of who al-Qaeda was and who Osama bin Laden was. Terrorism was brought to the doorstep of my family. I was in graduate school at the University of South Carolina working on a master's degree. And that day rocked my entire world. As the oldest of four boys, I've always been very protective of my brothers. I've always been, I knew I was a leader because my mom says, your job is to take care of your brother. So I was literally the consummate big brother, probably overbearing for them their whole lives. What made this day so traumatic for me is that I encouraged my brother to join the Navy like my father did. I blame myself for him even joining the military at some time. And here he is dying in a terrorist attack. I wanted to give up on life. I wanted to give up on everything, because what's the point of trying to do good and trying to save the whole world when you can't even save the people closest to you, when you can't even help the people closest to you? And I call myself helping my brother by encouraging him to join the Navy to give him discipline, to give him a salary, to give him a career path, to give him all of the things that we all want in life is meaning and purpose and doing something good. I tried to give my brother that and I got him killed. That's what I would say to myself. I really wanted to give up on life. And those were some of the darkest times and the darkest days. Losing my brother, who was only 22 years old when he lost his life. So at this point that I'm talking to you, my brother has been gone longer than he was alive. So it was a hard time. I will tell you the point of that is in those dark days, suffering from depression and feeling anxiety and just spiritually not grounded, feeling lost in every way, shape or form, I was able to find a purpose and meaning in his sacrifice. As I look back on it today, if my brother had not Given his life for this country in service to this country. Matt, you and I would not be talking today. What you see me doing today, I would not be doing. There was no purpose or focus for all of those wonderful things that you mentioned in my introduction. All of them happened. All of them, other than playing college football, happened after my brother was killed. I found my meaning in honoring his memory, his legacy, and what he stood for. Because if you know anything about My brother, Sharon, which I know you don't, but if you did, you will know that he served people first before he tried to lead them. My brother was born on Valentine's Day (laughs) and his birthday made him the love child for my mom. Like he was a kid who always wanted to make sure mom had everything that she needed. He paid attention to the details of what was important to other people. He would sacrifice his time and effort to serve others. After he was killed, there was this amazing story. He lived in Georgia at the time, and he was living with my mom's brother, trying to get a job as a cop and was struggling at doing that. And that's when I encouraged him to join the Navy. But before he joined the Navy, there was a guy who lived across the street from my uncle. The guy was married and had three young children. And all of his children were like under the age of five, under the age of seven. My brother was outside one day talking to the neighbor and the neighbor says, man, I haven't been able to take my wife on a date in seven years because we got three young kids. My brother at 19 years old or 20 years old says, look, man, take your wife out on a date. I'll come over and babysit your kids for the evening on a Friday night. So I want you to think about what other 19 year old, you know, would give up a Friday night to babysit three kids under seven. So their neighbor across the street could go out on a date and take his wife on a date. So my brother cared about people and what was important in their lives. He served them first. And so that became a cornerstone part of my mission. And my purpose is to make service the prerequisite of my leadership. Everything I've done for the last 23 years has been focused on serving and understanding the responsibility of a leader, which is to make things better for the people around you. That's the tough stuff that helped to make me who I am today. Oh,
0: man. Thank you. Thank you, Anton, for sharing that. And we see the glory and we don't know the story. Thank you for honoring us for the story of your brother. We certainly salute him and honor him his ultimate sacrifice and thank you for going deep and sharing the emotionally challenging time and sharing that even someone who was a high-level athlete who graduated who is on a path who's looking out for his little brother even the people that we look at that are the leaders and they're i call top of the class they can struggle from depression they can struggle from anxiety can you Take us back. I'll say one more question in this thread, and then let's move forward. I want to capture that moment or that little season in life when there was depression, there was anxiety, and there was challenge, and you converted that into purpose and mission. Can you talk a little bit about and hone in on that period and how you came to find your mission?
1: Man, I will say it really is the people around you that are able to help you the most. I will tell you that I grew up Catholic, grew up in a strong Catholic household. My mom was Catholic, grandmother Catholic, aunts and uncles, we were all Catholic. But when I got to college, like a lot of kids in college, you kind of stray away from your faith. It becomes more important to sleep in on Sunday mornings than it is to get up and go to mass. And, uh, you know, I had a bad experience at a Catholic church, that I'll tell you, some other time. And I was like, man, I'm not going back. I found myself from the age of like 20 all the way on up to... 27 straying away from my faith. But I fell in love with this beautiful woman from Columbia, South Carolina. Her name is Tiffany, who was very, very strong in her faith and was connected to church and went to church multiple times a week. Was basically like, if you want to be with me, then you need to go to church. I would only go to church because she wanted me to go to church. I was there for her, not there for me. I was there To support her and not there for my faith. But we started going to a church and had a great pastor who was a man kind of after my own heart. He would talk about hip hop. I had never met a preacher who would talk about hip hop and make some connections with hip hop and reference hip hop a little bit. He also was a history buff like I was. I majored in history in college. So that was the foundation as I was surrounded by a good pastor and my wife. And when my brother died, I was angry at God and I had lots of questions. And look, my brother never did anything wrong. My brother wasn't a bad person. Why would God do this to him and do this to me? And I didn't understand the Christianity versus Muslim or the Jewish versus Muslim. I didn't understand Middle East these positive. I didn't understand. I was angry and confused. I wasn't sleeping at night. I mean, I literally was staying up till four or five o'clock in the morning trying to find out why. My brother was killed because the other side of the world was awake at four or five o'clock in the morning. So I'm just obsessed and anxious and not sleepy, just having all of these problems. The pastor came to our house one day and I told him, I said, I'm angry at God. I mean, I'm just really angry and I don't understand why. He said something to me. He said, Anton, I can't give you the answer to why, but I can tell you how to find the answer. That began my slow maturation of understanding that the solution to all of our challenges and problems is believing that there's something bigger than us and we need to seek and understand. My darkest moments, it was my wife's commitment to her faith and commitment to our faith now and me having a great, great spiritual advisor in Barrett-Mitchell. Also, having good friends around me. I got a master's degree in social work. One of the things is that when you're around social workers, you know lots of therapists and counselors and supporters. And Mike Williams was my therapist during those days when I lost my brother. He really helped to guide my thoughts back to a positive place. It was dark and hard, but between my wife, Barry Mitchell, and Mike Williams is how I found my footing and began to develop a prayer life that became the cornerstone of how I rebuilt my relationship with Christ. And that helped me to move forward. And I'm just grateful for my salvation. I'm just grateful that I've been able to come out of those dark places and lead as much of a Christ-like life as I possibly can.
0: And I love that answer. <laughs> this... I love you, man. You're awesome. This is so easy to talk to you. You've used the word gratitude number of times, service, your core values and principles on full display. And I love that you use the word therapist, It kind of just detaching the stigma of therapy for men our age. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's encouraged to help people talk through stuff. I love that you shared that. And I just have to scratch the itch. Uh, What's the origin story of you and Tiffany, this amazing woman that's had a great impact in your world? How did you guys meet?
1: Great question and a great origin story. So Tiffany is from Columbia. She grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, was a standout high school athlete in multiple sports, basketball, softball, volleyball. She went off to college to play basketball in North Carolina around the same time that I came to Columbia to play football. We were never supposed to meet. I mean, she grew up here in Columbia went to college in North Carolina. I grew up in Virginia came to college in South Carolina to Columbia. We both had difficult experiences as college athletes. And when I put it to you in that way, if it was only about football, the University of South Carolina might've been the worst decision I'd ever made in my life. But for basketball, for her, she had a bad decision to the school that she went to in North Carolina. I ended up graduating early. And when I say graduating early, I never played my last season as a college football player I got my degree in three years and I quit the football team. I just had to get away from it because it was too much of a toxic environment for me. She had a similar toxic environment where she went to play college basketball and she moved back home and was living in Columbia. I happened to be staying at an apartment with two of my fraternity brothers, one of which went to high school with her. One day he tells me that these two girls that he knows from high school are having a cookout. It was the summer of 1996. I was broke, still didn't have a job. I had just gotten my first full-time job after college, so I didn't have any money. And so like a broke college student, what do you do? You go find the barbecue and you go eat for free and drink as much alcohol as you can while you're there. You don't have to pay for it. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, so I go to this barbecue. I eat up as much food as I possibly can. I got a few drinks in me. And then I happen to be standing in the kitchen like, whose house is this? Where am I? I don't know any of these people here other than the two guys that I came with. Well, the long story short, it was actually Tiffany's house and it was her birthday and her and her roommate was throwing a backyard barbecue for her birthday. So we met on her birthday. That is how we began. Awesome.
0: Wow. What a cool origin story. And I totally relate to that, being a poor, broke college student, trying to eat as much as I could. And people like us, we don't eat little. (laughs) No.
1: I literally ate, I think I ate a whole quarter leg of chicken, ate two hamburgers, a plate of baked (laughs) beans, and a hot dog. I mean, like, I got full, full, because that might have been my only meal of the weekend, so I had to make sure I was going to eat, right? That's
0: fantastic. Well... Thank you for some of the backstory. I'd love yeah. to ask you this, kind of moving forward from here. One of the things that just stands out in your profile and your life experience, just off the page, is you're an advisor for President Barack Obama. Can you take us back and just take a few minutes and share how did that happen? And why? Why did you aspire to that and want to be working with President Barack Obama and had that happen?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So in order to do that, the full context is... I spent roughly 10 years, the first 10 years of my professional career as a community activist. Now, when I say community activist, I was a grassroots community organizer in Columbia. And my job was to go door to door in low income communities, ask people about the problems that they were having in their community. So whether it was homelessness, housing, et cetera, it didn't matter what the problems were. But the one that I was hired to focus on was access to healthcare, And so I would knock on doors and ask people, do you have health insurance coverage? And 100 percent of the time, the people that answer the door says, no, I don't have health insurance coverage. And then my next question was, well, what happens to you when you get sick? What do you do? Where do you go to the doctor? What hospital? So for 10 years, I learned how people were being mistreated by the American healthcare system and how they didn't have insurance coverage, they couldn't get their prescriptions filled and depending on how much money they had, the language that they spoke, what their race, ethnicity was, their gender identity, sexual orientation. I've heard thousands of horrible experiences about people in the American healthcare system. And it used to make me angry and not just generally angry, but it pissed me off to the highest of festivity. And the reason why I say that is because I told you I grew up a military brat. So I had health insurance coverage my whole life. I never missed a dentist appointment. I never missed a doctor's appointment. Neither did one of my brothers. My mom had four kids and never had to spend a dime to have a baby. So we knew what access to health care looked like. And I assumed for the first 22 years of my life that everybody had health insurance coverage and that they all were taken care of. Yeah. And it wasn't until 96 that I learned about the brokenness of the healthcare system. So for 10 years, that's the kind of work that I did. And that 10th year was 2006. I was totally frustrated that we weren't making enough progress to give people health insurance coverage. And many times the point of that frustration boiled down to a politician, in particular in South Carolina, a member of the state legislature who refused to vote for laws that would provide more access to healthcare. So I got upset and said, you know what, I'm sick and tired of begging these politicians to do the right thing and they don't wanna listen. So I'm gonna just run for office myself. So I decided to run for the state legislature in 2006 and I lost. When I mean I lost, I ran against an incumbent who was a popular guy and I just filed to run, didn't really know what I was doing and I lost but I only lost by 298 votes what? out of 14,000. What? Wow. So when I got close, I was like, man, this is really doable. I just need to really figure out what I'm doing. But I was still dejected because as a former athlete, you don't like to lose. You don't want to lose at all. But I lost and I was like, man, I'm upset. I happened to be in Washington, D.C. two weeks later, hearing about this guy named Barack Obama, who everybody was talking about, was thinking about, running for president. So this is, again, late 1996. He was not a presidential candidate. He was thinking about it. Everybody was talking about him. And I didn't know who he was. I never heard his name. I was like, who's Barack Obama? And nobody's going to vote for a guy named Barack Obama for president. You know, that that's what is that about? And I pick his book up off the shelf while I'm in the airport in the bookstore, getting ready to fly back to South Carolina. I start reading his book and I'm mesmerized by what I'm reading on paper. And this guy was talking about the same challenges that I talked about when I was campaigning, but he talked about them in such an effective way. And I was like, man, if I was talking like this guy, I would have won rather than losing. So I told my friends, hey, man, I need to meet Barack Obama. I need to get to know him. This guy is amazing. And if he's thinking about running for president, I need to get close to him. I got to be around people like that because Mm -hmm. he has the right language and the right mindset. If I was talking like him, I would have won. So they said, well, Anton, you a newbie to politics. You ran for office and you lost. You don't know anybody. You're not connected to no U.S. senator in in D.C. or Illinois. How in the heck are you going to get to Barack Obama? And I said, well, I'm going to call him on the phone. And they literally laughed at me and said, if You gonna call Barack Obama? There's no way you gonna call Barack. I said, Yes, I am. I'm gonna call him. Watch. So, January of 2007, I picked up the phone and I called his Senate office in Washington, D.C. They answered the phone and said, Senator Barack Obama's office. I said, Hey, I'm Anton Gunn. I live in South Carolina. I wanna speak to Barack Obama. And they said, Are you in South Carolina, not Illinois? I said, Yeah, I'm in South Carolina. And they said, Well, you should call your own U.S. Senator and not Barack Obama. I said, no, I don't want to talk to my U.S. Senator. I want to talk to Barack Obama. They took a message and nobody called me back. So I called the next day, same thing. I called the next day, same thing. Took a message, nobody called me back. Then I called the next day, same day, took a message, nobody called me back. So then I said, well, maybe let me send him an email. So I sent an email to Barack Obama's Senate office saying who I am, why I wanted to talk to him, I wanted to meet him and get to know him because I think he's a great guy and I want to be in his circle. Nobody responded to my email. Then I called again and called again and I called again. So after about the ninth time when nobody called me back, I said, maybe they're too busy in D.C. So let me call Chicago. So I called his Senate office in Chicago, Illinois. Lo and behold, they took a message and they never called me back. And I said, wow, I mean, I've called this man 10 times. I sent an email. Nobody's responded to me. I said, well, what can I do? What's the most unconventional way for me to get to this guy? I said, okay, where's his other Senate offices? Well, he has a Senate office in downstate Illinois in Springfield, the capital. It's also the more conservative part of the state of Illinois, a lot of farmland down there. So a Democratic senator is not getting a lot of phone calls in his Southern Illinois office. So I pick up the phone, and at this point, I have absolutely nothing to lose. I've called 10 times, and nobody's called me back. So I pick up the phone, I call the Senate office in Illinois, and some woman answers the phone. She says, U.S. Senator Barack Obama's office. And I said, who is this? And she gives me her name. I don't remember her name. She says, how can I help you? I said, well, ma'am, you don't know me, but you need to know me. My name is Anton Gunn. And I live in South Carolina and I'm hearing that Barack Obama is thinking about running for president. And I've called his office 10 times and he hasn't called me back. And I'm in South Carolina, as I remind you. So I need you to write my number down. And I gave her my phone number and I said, if Barack Obama doesn't call me back, I'm going to make sure he loses. And I hung up the phone on her. Hmm. And I hung up the phone, had nothing to lose. About 20 minutes later, I missed a call on my BlackBerry. I had a BlackBerry at the time. Oh. And I missed a call on my phone, and I looked down, and it had unknown caller. And I was like, unknown? Who called me from an unknown number? So I checked the voicemail, and when I pressed one to play my voicemail back, the voicemail said, Anton, this is U.S. Senator Barack Obama <laughs> from Illinois. Get out of here. I can't wait to meet you. Uh-huh. I can't wait to get to know you. I got all your messages and your email. I think I'm a run for president and I need some people, some organizers in South Carolina to help me get my campaign off the ground. So call me back at 312-282. I can't give you the rest of the number. I called him right back. He answers the phone. We have a two minute conversation. Two weeks later, I'm in Washington, D.C., meeting with Barack Obama. That began the journey where I became the political director on his nascent presidential campaign in South Carolina. So in 2007, when he announced that he was running for president in Springfield, Illinois, I was already on his payroll as a staff person in South Carolina. And I kind of advised the campaign strategy in the early days of the South Carolina primary in 2007 and 2008. Fast forward two years later, I'm serving in his administration as an advisor over the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, going back to my healthcare roots yes. when I started in 2006. So that's the long and short story of how I got to be with Barack Obama.
0: Wow. A testament to perseverance, a testament to genuinely caring, wanting to make a difference. How did that feel to you when the Affordable Care Act was finally passed, knowing it would help the people that you served for those 10 years? What was that that feeling
1: like? So amazing. I think the, the word I would just describe is amazing because I remember how wrong it was for so long for so many people. And, and, and let me be clear. It wasn't just the poor people in those communities whose doors that I was knocking on, who didn't have good outcomes with the healthcare system. It was a lot of small business owners. I, I mean, I married Tiffany's family, were entrepreneurs. Her mom was a real estate agent. Her dad did real estate property management. They didn't have a W-2 paycheck, a job that provided health insurance coverage. So whenever they had health challenges, paying out of pocket for health care was a massive problem for them. And it got to be more and more expensive. So the real reality of the ACA was that I was helping real life Americans who were trying to live their American dream, but because they didn't have good access to quality, affordable health care because they couldn't get treatment for routine medical conditions, because they couldn't have their pregnancy covered or get a purple pill for their acid reflux because they couldn't get basic stuff. It was slowing their life down and making it hard for them to live their God-given potential. So when we passed the Affordable Care Act and at the end of that first open enrollment period, 7 million people signed up for coverage and like 3 million young adults, people who were in their early 20s that could still stay on their parents' health insurance plan. That was what it was all about for me. And now to see today that some 40 million Americans got health insurance coverage under the Affordable Care Act is a mind shift for me at how successful it has become And I'm currently on Obamacare right now as I talk to you, because I'm an entrepreneur, small business owner. And it is how I provide health insurance coverage for my wife, who is an entrepreneur, and my 19-year-old daughter, who's a college student. So I'm grateful that, you know, I don't have to be sitting in the box of some corporate job doing something that I don't love and and not fulfilled by, but I'm able to pursue my God-given potential, my talent, and my dreams, and keep my faith, my family safe and secure from a major health crisis and a disaster. So amazing is the word that I will give it. Awesome.
0: And it's so cool to see someone who started grassroots, who got to endure everything that you endured in learning all these stories and to see it come to fruition years later, it's a testament to, there's no instant gratification. It took time and it took real hard effort. Mm -hmm. And and you helped Mm -hmm. that happen. And just thank you for that. Thank you. That's amazing. And I'd love to go and talk about your coaching and your speaking and how you're serving people now. And you've talked about leadership. I think you've done an exemplary job of modeling that, just you being you today. So can you talk a little bit about this phase you're in in your life, your career now, and why yes. where? Please.
1: Yeah, great segue. So for everybody who is listening, I, I want to start with a premise quote from the great John Maxwell. John Maxwell is one of the greatest leaders leadership advisors and coaches on the planet Earth, guru of leadership, ranked by every magazine. And he has this phrase that says, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I wholeheartedly agree and believe that leadership is the most important thing that we need to invest in, that we need to develop in ourselves, that we need to develop in the teams that we lead, that organizations need to develop around them. Because where you see great leadership, where great leadership exists, I will demonstrate to you a highly effective and successful organization with people who are successful in every way, shape or form. So for the better part of 25 years, I've not only studied the concept of leadership, I've lived the concept of leadership. I've led teams as small as four and in organizations as large as 80,000. I've led in a legislative district that had 90,000 people, because I mentioned to you that I ran for office and lost in 2006, but I didn't tell you that two years later, I ran for that same office again in 2008, and instead of losing by 298 votes, I won by 3,000 votes. Mm. So I was the first African American in history to represent my district. The first Democrat in 25 years. And so I was very comfortable speaking to people from all walks of life with different backgrounds and helping them to understand that I cared about what's important to them. What I want to give you is I want to give you the greatest piece of leadership teaching that you and every listener of this podcast, if they want to master how to find success as a leader, you need to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you the three most important questions that every person is asking every day of their life when they come in contact with a leader. That leader might be a supervisor at work, the CEO of a company, the leader of the Boy Scout troop, or even that person who's a customer who walks in the door of your business. They're all asking the same three questions. And depending on how you answer these three questions will determine your success or your failure as a leader. Here's question number one. Do you care about me? Question number two is, will you help me? And question number three is, can I trust you? Now, if you want to be a dynamic leader, the most admired leader in your organization, in your community or on the planet Earth, How you answer those three questions are everything. Now, here's the common thought is, of course, I'm a leader. I care about my people. I want to help them to be successful. Yes, they should trust me. But, Matt, nobody wants to hear yes to those three questions. They could care less about the words because your mission statement, your personnel policies, your website says yes. All of the words out of your mouth say yes. Mm -hmm. But do your actions match the words? People want to see in your actions, that you care about them, that you're willing to help them, and that they can trust you. So for the better part of 25 years as a leadership speaker, I teach leaders and organizations how to build diverse, high-performing teams in a world-class workplace culture that always answers those three questions by their actions. You can easily identify these types of organizations because of two things. Number one, the leader has become a person that everybody will admire. And number two, the employees and the people in that organization, they never want to quit because they feel valued, they feel respected, they feel included, they feel visible, and most importantly, they have been empowered to execute on the mission so they can help grow the margin. So I do this in keynote presentations for large companies and small companies at conferences, association events, retreats, et cetera. And I also work with organizations on a longer term basis, advising them on strategies on how to build this culture. What I am is if you bring me to your conference or your company all staff meeting, I'm not going to say I'm the best speaker on the planet Earth, but I will tell you. The hardest challenge you will have next year is figuring out who's going to come on stage the next year after me, because I'm going to give people relevant, tangible teaching that teaches them how to lead, how to build a world-class workplace culture, and most importantly, how to be a leader who always does the right thing, Mm. because it's never a wrong time to do the right thing.
0: Mm. 100%. Amen. I love everything that you just shared. And a word, I'll use it again. You have exemplified and modeled leadership. You have practiced what you preach. You're completely congruent with everything you're sharing. And I would encourage all of our listeners to go check out Anton. Anton, where can we find you online? And I believe you might even have an offer for our listeners today.
1: Yes, I do. So I got two things for you. So number one, you can always find me at Anton J. Gunn on any platform, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, please connect with me. I would love to connect with everybody on social. But for your listeners, because I want to give value, I don't just believe in talking. I love to give value. Uh, I have a new book. It's called Just Lead, 44 Actions to Break Down Barriers and Boost Your Retention to Build a World-Class Culture. But I want to give you a toolkit, a free toolkit, based upon the book Just Lead. It's called my Just Lead Toolkit. And if you go to antonguncom slash toolkit, You give me an email address, I will send you the nine pivotal points that I share in every one of my keynote presentations. I'm going to give you a free ebook on the 10 qualities of world-class leaders. And when I say world-class leaders, I want you to think about people like Martin Luther King, like Nelson Mandela, like Mahatma Gandhi, like Mother Teresa, like the greatest leaders who are revered in the world. These are the 10 qualities that they all share in common. I'm going to give you that. And then if you're interested in continuing to grow yourself as a leader, I'd be happy to give you my free 52 week lessons. It's called the Just Lead application series, which are 52 lessons that are delivered real time into your inbox every Monday morning, teaching you an action plan for how you can operationalize answering those three questions every day as a leader that week. And so, I want to give you value. So go to antongun.com/toolkit You give me an email address. I'll send all of this content to you and look forward to staying connected and adding value to you and wherever you might sit in this leadership journey. Wow.
0: Wow. Thank you. This is amazing. I'm on the website right now. And I don't know if everyone heard that or repeat again, free opportunity to learn from Anton and have it delivered to you. All you have to do is just go to the website and put in an email address. You're going to get all this great content and value for nothing, just taking the time to do that. And if you haven't witnessed it already, when you open the website, everyone, it's a powerful visual experience just opening the website. I'm looking at it right now, and just seeing Anton stage, I mean – he looks good. He looks like he can command the room, and it looks like someone that you want to follow. And his action state just demonstrated that. So, dear listeners, please go to a n t o n g u n n A-N-T-O-N-G-U-N-N.com, and check out the free toolkit, the 52-week of lessons, the nine pivotal points, and the 10 qualities of top leaders. All of this is amazing stuff. Anton, man, this is amazing. Man, you're you're, you. you're giving tons of value here, and this is super, just thank you. This is fantastic. Uh, I'd hate to cut it short. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, no problem. It's been great being with you. And I will say service is the prerequisite of leadership, but empowerment is the essence of leadership. And that's the reason why I give the tools that I give, because it's it's not enough to feed a man a fish and service is feeding someone a fish. But will you teach them to fish and not just teach them to fish? But will you teach them the right bait to use and what's the right pole to use and where they should be fishing? And do you know what kind of fish do they want? Do they want saltwater fish or freshwater fish? And so when I give these valuable resources and there's a whole slew of other free resources on antongun.com, is that I am I'm teaching you to fish in the way that you want to learn how to fish. I really believe that in giving the most value, is that I have to understand what you need to be empowered. Some people need tools about how to communicate. Other people need to just how to position themselves, how to brand themselves. Other people just need to understand what their teams want and what their teams need. And so I focus on providing the greatest value of empowerment because by empowering people, you then set the stage for the most important part of my value system, and that is legacy. And that is, what are you doing to leave this world a better place long after you? And my brother, Sharon, only lived 22 years of his life. He didn't get the opportunity to leave a long legacy. But in his 22 years, he left a very impactful legacy on me, his older brother. So my mission is now to serve, empower, and leave a legacy of service and empowerment for others to follow. That's what I do.
0: I would love to just say, hey, drop the mic and go. Before we do that, though, I've got a couple last questions and lightning round to just let us peer into your brain just a little bit more. Okay, question number one. We've already heard you share your book, Just Lead, 44 Actions That Will Help to Break Down Practical Leadership. I would love to ask you if there's one or two other books that have had a big influence on you. What are one or two other books, Anton, that you'd recommend?
1: Oh, my God. There's so many books and I'm a ferocious (laughs) reader. I read about 60 books a year. Mm -hmm. The one that I just finished last week is called The Gap in the Game by Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy. That book is revolutionary. You're thinking about achievement, about entrepreneurship and just focus on the right thing. Most of us operate in the gap and we never think about the game. So that book is at the top of my list. A second book, again, the first real leadership book that I read was The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell, which was a dynamic book in itself. And the third book I'm going to give you is a history book, and it's called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's the book about Abraham Lincoln's presidency and his cabinet. The reason why that book is so dynamic is that most people don't know That the men that Abraham Lincoln put in his cabinet were all the people who ran against him for president. They all hated each other. They didn't agree. Their philosophies were different. They didn't align at all. But Abraham Lincoln was humble enough as a leader to say, you know what, you all are smarter than me and I'm going to bring a whole team of rivals around me to help me shepherd the nation through the most difficult time in American history, which was the civil war. So if you want to learn about understanding people's differences and understanding how to connect with people at the individual level and then bring them together to do something greater than themselves, you need to read The Team of Rivals. And those are three of my top books, but I could probably give you another duck. I
0: know you could, man. (laughs) I know you could. And I've never heard that one yet. Thank you. This is excellent. Team of Rivals and, of course, 21 Irrefutable Laws by Maxwell and then uh, Gap in the Game. A requirement for any recovering perfectionist out there. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Music. You've already hit Jack the Ripper. You've already hit the Fat Boys. What might be another song or or something that fills your bucket and inspires you when it comes to music?
1: Oh, man. So um, <laughs> I'm a ferocious hip hop head. And so if you can see on the wall behind me in the background, I have seven albums yes. that are the most important albums of my life. These are all seminal classic albums. You have It Takes the Nations of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. You have My Philosophy by Boogie Down Productions. You have Follow the Leader by Eric B. and Rakim. You got a Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest. Nas is Illmatic, Into the Wu-Tang, The 36 Chambers. And then the last one is Gangstar Moment of Truth. All of those albums matter to me, but if I am looking for an album that lifts me up no matter what I might be going through and what challenges I might be dealing with, it is going to be A Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. That song is going to motivate me no matter what. I could probably name a song off each one of those albums because Uh that's the reason why they're so important, like Gangstar's Moment of Truth, Mm -hmm. the song Moment of Truth is another one. So I'll stop there, but I could, when I say I'm a hip hop head, I literally probably could have a PhD in hip hop. I mean, I've lectured at Harvard on hip hop. Uh, it's that kind of love and passion for me. So I could go forever on this.
0: Amazing. And I took note of all of those. That's going to be my uh, Spotify playlist tonight. So thank you. I'm looking forward to a uh, puzzle night and game night tonight. This is awesome. And last question and you get the last word. Anton, this is the Eternal Optimist podcast. And When you hear the word eternal optimist, what might that mean to you, sir?
1: I'm pretty sure you have heard of the Optimist Creed. And I actually have the Optimist Creed on my wall right here. It's been on my wall for more than 10 years. Every place that I move, I have the Optimist Creed on my wall. The first line is to be so strong that nothing can disturb your peace of mind. That's what optimism starts with for me is your mind. Your mindset is more important than your skill set. So optimism is believing something bigger and something greater than yourself that we all need to be a part of. That's the vision, that's the focus, and that's the peace of mind that I will never allow anybody to disturb. And so that's what you got for me.